All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Natureversity Podcast. Today, I am joined with Grayson Offerman. Grayson, how you doing? Oh, pretty good. You want to uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is that you're doing in your life? Sure, yeah. So, my name is Grayson Offerman. Uh, I'm 19, just coming off of a year with the Conservation Corps right now with AmeriCorps. Uh, I'm going to be starting uh, the University of Arizona in a couple days studying evolutionary biology. Um, I've known you, Chris, forever. Um, <laughs> it's been, yeah, it's been a very long time. Lots of fun adventures together. Um, but yeah, my biggest interest, conservation, of course. Um, and I had a great experience with the core, and I'm sure we'll get into that. Uh, herpetology, and then um, skeletal articulation as well. Uh, museum preparation, all kinds of stuff like that. So. Yeah. You know, it's funny we call Natureversity Natureversity because a long time ago I was... People were asking me, like, where'd you go to school? How'd you learn all this stuff? And I'd always be like, the University of Nature. And it just became this ongoing joke about, like, Natureversity. But then one day I thought, like, the University of Texas has at Austin, at Houston, at Dallas. And then I started thinking bigger. I'm like, man, they have alumni. And when I think about alumni, Grayson, I think about you. You're like Natureversity's alumni. You're, You're going out there after graduating through some of our programs, and you're continuing to promote uh, promote a message of nature connection to anyone you encounter, whether that just be sharing things that you're passionate about, about skulls or reptiles or helping literally restore the land where we all go and uh, enjoy the wilderness. So I just wanted to say thank you for always being passionate as a student growing up at Natureversity and always just re-inspiring all the kids around you because you never, you had what I would call tempered, fearlessness like you knew things were dangerous but you'd be like i know this is just safe enough to expose these kids like some of those kids when you'd handle snakes they'd be like what the heck man like this kid just grabbed this snake and they would be inspired to want to have that so long-winded way of just saying i really value you I really uh, look up to you and just thank you so much for being on this podcast. So I want to hear all about your background. What was your childhood like, Grayson? Um, Well, like you said, Natureversity was very formative for me, um, although I didn't know it as Natureversity at the time. (laughs) Um, But yeah, when I was, let's see, because I did that with you when I was uh, homeschooling and um, we would go out to like Metro Park and go out looking for centipedes and snakes and learning archery, um, which was a big one for me, cordage, um, all kinds of just like really neat skills. And I've always been into that. Um, I grew up in the just outdoors. My parents were very much so the type who, you know, lock the door, go out, have fun, be back before dinner kind of thing. Um, So that was uh, really important for me growing up. And then when I moved to Texas, um, I found you through the the uh, homeschooling, and it just kind of allowed me to really, like, uh, come to very specific skills, I guess. Um, like, I had this kind of vague idea of, like, I really enjoy being outdoors, but um, Natureversity was kind of like, you know, here's what you can do with a juniper and all the different ways that you can use it for medicine or cordage or basket making or fire. Like, this one plant can be used in a hundred different ways, you know. Um So I went from, you know, just really liking juniper and climbing on them to having like this whole other vast um, appreciation for it. Um, And like that with everything, you know, like um, riverbeds, like all the biology there, all the cool things that you could do with that and like clay and cool critters and just like it just expanded my worldview, I guess, on that a lot. Yeah. Well, that's what we want to do is get people comfortable 
and confident, especially the parents. You know, I know you said your parents locked the doors. Like that is a level of confidence that they had in you to be able to do something like that. That's how my grandparents were. And then when they raised me, like kicked me outside and were don't come back till it's dark. Same thing. Or we would even just call our parents and say, Hey, we're having dinner at so-and-so's house and probably going to stay the night here. And that was just a thing you did. So I'm glad that you had such freedom growing up, um, to explore all of these passions and things. So your father, uh, who is, I believe a herpetologist veterinarian Mm -hmm. probably had a big influence in your life and how nature connection was. And talk about that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So my dad is a veterinarian. Um, he's kind of an exotics vet. Um, so he does a lot of work with conservation and advises zoos and whatnot, but then he always jokes dogs and cats pay the bills. Um, so he has, you know, <laughs> true. yeah. So 90% is dogs and cats and spays and neuters and sure. vaccinate, you know, whatever. Porcupines in the, in the muzzle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. A lot of that. He had one like last week, like a Rottweiler with like a thousand quilts oh. or something. Yeah. So, so that's the majority. Um, but aside from that, he also did a lot of exotic stuff and he kind of built up this reputation of like being the go-to guy for reptiles, especially, um, and turtles and tortoises, especially from that. Um, and he would always tell like his, uh, his mom and his dad growing up, uh, my grandma, like when I grow up, I want to be a turtle vet, which wasn't even really a thing that like anyone knew that was even a potential, but yeah, I mean, he did it <laughs> he went all the way. So, um, that was definitely really, really formative for me. Um, and it introduced me to kind of the academia, I guess, of like herpetology. Admittedly, not so much when I was younger, but I would still go to conferences with him. I'd go to his continuing education. Um, so like at 12, I would be learning about the intricacies of neutering a cat, you know, which like I had no real applied interest to, but it was like <laughs> the coolest thing ever, you know, to learn how to sew up a cat under anesthesia or whatever. So like I've always just kind of loved learning even if it's some really random thing like that. Um, do you think if I got you a cat and a surgery table, you could do it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, we'll have to see. <laughs> Hopefully it never comes to that. Um, but yeah, so it was, it just kind of introduced me to this other world. Like I said with you too, with like appreciating a specific organism for all of the intricacies that I learned through Natureversity. I also got that a lot with like reptiles where it's one thing to, you know, when I was growing up, it was like, I love catching snakes. I love catching turtles. They were like, this really incredible thing as a standalone, but like um, going to conferences and seeing all the incredible research and the incredible um, things you can learn about one particular species um, taught me a lot and kind of gave me the academic focus that I think I have now, which is why I want to do evolutionary biology and field work. And um, there's just so much that we don't know and so much to appreciate with mm -hmm. those critters, especially the ones, you know, the, the quote unquote creepy crawlies, which is what I've always been interested in because spiders, snakes, uh, centipedes are usually kind of overlooked. A mm -hmm. lot of people want to go out and study, you know, the natural history of a rock squirrel or something because it's cute and it gets a lot of funding, a lot of grants, but there's more that we know about species like that than these kind of like um, hidden or like benthic things. Um that are overlooked a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> There's definitely so many, uh, creatures like I was talking about Allison yesterday who was on the podcast and the, the canopies that we don't know about. And I'm just so perplexed. You know, what's funny is I tell the kids, sometimes they ask like, how do you know all this? And I'm just like, I just study nature. And it's really exciting to me when I go out there. But what's, what I tell them is, you know, if I were to spend a whole lifetime, like a hundred years, let's say just in Austin, 
I still wouldn't know it all, you know? So now, like, let's extrapolate that to the state of Texas. And now let's go to the United States. And now mm-hmm. let's go to the world. And here's the most amazing part is, let's say you have a million lifetimes to do the whole world. Let's say it's going to take that much. During that millions of lifetimes, all the evolution has taken place. So you now got to go back and go back to Austin and yeah. restudy Austin because what has changed for all those lifetimes that you're gone. So nature to me is just a never ending. It's like, um, it's like being really, really thirsty and you just can't quench your thirst. Yeah. That's well, nature to me. And that's what I love about science too, is it's like, it's, it's so tantalizing because the more you understand, the more you realize you don't know. Yeah, um, exactly. When I was like nine or 10, there was a bunch of news articles about like, well, we're going to clone the woolly mammoth. And, oh yeah. Um, my nine or 10 year old brain was like, I can do that. I can do that in the garage. <laughs> so I like yeah. went out bought a bunch of genetics books and I was like delving into it. And then I think that was the first time I was like, oh my gosh, this is so above my head. I mean, obviously, yeah. but like your nine or 10 year old brain is like, I could, I have test tubes, you know, I can use so. But there are people out there who definitely apply themselves. And I guarantee you, if you were to apply yourself for a while, you would slowly figure out how to do that. Yeah. It's, it's like a humans. That's one of the remarkable things about humans is their strive you know, to accomplish things and to be able to work together and to facet, you know, tools together to help achieve those goals. We were discussing the other day, what is the difference between animals and humans? And uh, somebody said, well, the fact that we make tools to make other things. And I was like, well, wait a second, primates make things to get other things. And then they had to, you know, backtrack that to because humans have the ability to tell a story that is completely concocted from their own imagination. That's now what they're saying ultimately like separates us from primates because primates can't do that. So what are your thoughts on that? You think that's true? I don't know. Um, One of my other interests (laughs) for sure, if I wasn't going to go so into biology is like literature and philosophy. Sure. And I loved having conversations like that because it's, it's so hard to like discern what exactly separates us, I guess. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's such a rabbit hole, you know, because there's always like, at the end of the day, we're still animals and it's also like kind of, kind of centric for us to be so focused on like what makes us different when there's so many things that make us the same too. And like the more and more we realize, like there was, um, I was reading an article, um, when was it a couple months ago that was saying something about how like chimpanzees and orangutans are kind of in their like own stone age. Yeah. You know, that's what I mean. I'm like, yeah. whoa, so cool. it's a huge it's spectrum. Yeah. It's crazy. And like, there's, um, so much about that that like uh i don't know yeah there's a picture of a chimpanzee like using a spear yeah that it fashioned like to hunt fish i'm yeah. like whoa that's i mean if they start tying knots and I, I heard there's zoo i could i could be mistaken on this i heard there's zoo chimpanzees that know how to start fires when given matches now clearly matches are like a you know that's a very modern tool but i wonder if with time you could show them like hand drill I'm sure. I'm I sure, mean, right? I used to know how to start it with a Bic lighter until I took <laughs> Nature Versity, and now I have 14 different ways, you know? Right. Yeah, and, and that was a period of, what, a year? Like, I, I mean, who's to say? Yeah. It's, it's really cool to know that that is happening because I just find it a, a, as part of being an animal. It's like progression, you know? Yeah. Like, you, you just got to go forward. That, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe some people are okay with stagnation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, you and I had this conversation last time we were together, but like the idea that like we're somehow better in a certain environment, whereas like if you compare on a level playing field, right, like a goldfish might be 
yeah. a lesser organism, let's say, or like I'm very interested in paleontology and the term primitive annoys me sometimes. Like people say a horseshoe crab is a primitive species, whereas it hasn't changed in tens of millions of years. It's perfectly adapted for this singular, you know, like technically, yeah, you could say humans are better than a horseshoe crab because we have, you know, we can write crazy books and have these incredible thoughts, but like when it comes down to our ability to like harvest X amount of, um, you know, food from the seafloor in a certain hour, like the horseshoe crab has a speed <laughs> no, every yeah. day. You know what I mean? Like or a goldfish can swim better than us. You know, mm-hmm. a squirrel can go up a tree faster. Like it's, I don't know the idea that like there's this hierarchy to vertebrates I think is, I don't know, completely false. Yeah. I would agree with that. I think that's, um, I saw a picture one time it was like a triangle and the human was at the top and it said ego. And then down below it, it was like a globe and the human was just like placed somewhere in the middle of the sphere and it just said eco. And I really thought that was like a good representation of how we need to kind of rethink and reevaluate exactly what you said about hierarchies in nature and us particular being at the top. Because I will tell you, as I'm sure you will, I go to barren mountain lion country. I do not feel I'm at the top. Yeah. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Like, I don't know what they're talking about in certain contexts. I'm like, well, go to Alaska, you know, with no rifle and no equipment and just see what happens to you. Yeah. While while venturing in the woods. Um, So you obviously had a, a, a very unique and special upbringing having so much influence around and you were in school and during school, I remember you were breeding reptiles. So can you tell us a little bit about breeding reptiles? Yeah. Um, that was one of the things that I got from my parents, uh, who were kind of in that world, but I, my dad breeds, um, turtles and tortoises, um, kind of for, it's called like zoo stock. So like, uh, zoos can only keep a certain amount of whatever species of turtle, tortoise, um, really any species uh, because of their funding and everything else. So they'll go and have people who basically have genetic banks um, for keeping, um, let's say, like a rare mud turtle. So in the private sector, there will be people who just breed and maintain those genetics so that if we ever want to do like a reintroduction, we can pull from multiple different lines so that it's the the best possible individuals to re um, introduce to a certain ecosystem. So I kind of grew up with that understanding through my dad. And then I got really interested in geckos, especially from um, an island chain called New Caledonia near like New Zealand, Australia, that region. Um, just these incredible geckos, uh, really biodiverse area. Um, would love to visit sometime. But I got really interested in crested geckos, which are fairly common in the pet trade. Um, and I started, I got a pair and I started breeding them and, uh, selling them at reptile shows. And it just became like a kind of a fun little like side hustle. Meanwhile, I was learning so much about their natural history. Yeah. Um, one of my science fair projects in elementary school was like figuring out what kind of fruit they liked the best. So it was also this opportunity for me to kind of have like a, a, um, captive population, if you will, that I could do like natural history experiments with. Cause a lot of the things that we know about species come from, um, private uh collections or uh, captive husbandry yeah you know geckos are so unique to me and i think uh, for those of everyone listening uh, to this podcast i bet a lot of you see geckos around your house but it's so weird how you don't see those those mediterranean geckos i Mm -hmm. believe how you don't see those in non-urban settings i've never found one like pulling out a wood pile in the middle of the woods i always see them somewhere near 
a urban area. Um, <clears throat> do you know anything about those Mediterranean geckos that you can share with people listening who might see them and think, hmm, I know more about this now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, those are actually an invasive species that were brought over. Um, last I heard the the current theories that they were brought over from houseplants brought in from the Mediterranean. Um, there hasn't been really any attempts to eradicate them because they don't really compete with anything since we don't have um, a native arboreal gecko, arboreal like climbing walls and trees. Um, we do have geckos in Texas uh, out west. You can find them, the desert banded gecko, um, the genus Coleonyx. They're all over the southwest. They're really cool. Um, but there's not a lot of uh, really concerns about them being invasive. Uh, I think that would probably be why they're more isolated to urban areas though. But yeah, they're kind of neat. Um, I think they're really neat. Yeah, I loved catching them when I was younger and they're everywhere. I had one get stuck in, you know, like up underneath your cabinets on the lower side near the floor. There's sometimes like cobwebs and soft stuff get stuck. I had a little baby gecko get stuck in the cobweb and then the cat noticed it. And But the cat picked it up by the cobweb. So it didn't hurt the gecko at all. So I was able to like get, I was like, what do you have? Cause she doesn't, when she would slinks away in this certain way, I know she has something in her mouth and I watched her run away. I was like, what have you got? So I ran over there and little, little he was about this big and uh, yeah, I let it outside. And <clears throat> I think the people don't look to eradicate or do anything about those things. Cause my understanding is they just keep out all the little pest bugs that are going to crawl into your home anyway. Oh, absolutely. Right. And so I think about that when I see wasps around my house too, like for the garden, you know, I'm like, I don't want to kill those wasps because the same reason I feel like they're just out eating little critters are going to get in my garden later anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, So those Mediterranean geckos, the coloration on them, is that something that you see across all geckos or is that something that's unique to them or like that? It's almost like they have see-through skin. Yeah. Um, Yeah actually kind of jumps into another thing that I was doing with a, another species of gecko that I had, but I was reading a paper. Um, I was doing a study on um, the ability of certain geckos to process UVB, uh, especially nocturnal species. And uh, I was reading a, a paper about Mediterranean geckos and they have paper thin skin because they're super nocturnal. So when they go out uh, during the day, even just briefly, even just dawn or dusk, they're able to get their daily wow. amount of UVB. That they need. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Whereas, like um, the uh, like fence lizards that we have here have yeah. really thick skin, super thick. Yeah, which is part of that is because there's more predators during the daytime, obviously. Yeah. And part of it, um, as far as my understanding is, it's also has something to do with their their UV permeability. So they're out there all day, just getting blasted by the sun, so they can still get that daily um, need without exceeding it, uh, because it's just going through their skin very very slowly. That's so cool. So So that's why. And that would make sense as far as them being from the Mediterranean area, right? Why their adaptation would would Mm -hmm. kind of have such a thing. The one that I was doing was with um, a species. So the genus in New Caledonia is Rachidactylus. And the New Caledonian giant gecko, uh, Rachidactylus lichianus, is um, one that I, I stopped breeding crested geckos years ago. And that's kind of my new focus now. But I recently did a study where I was looking at um, how we can kind of make captive husbandry better for them um, by introducing ultraviolet light. And that's where I kind of went down the rabbit hole with all of this. And I started looking into um, UVB and the permeability of their skin and um, things like that. And I actually did notice pretty significant uh, growth changes when you had just introduced this small variable. Um, like we were talking about how we have just have so much to learn about 
different organisms. And like, I think captive husbandry, especially whether it's zoos or private sector, like there's so much that can be done to, to improve um, breeding and the, the quality of life and, and just so much there. Yeah. What about the, you were talking about turtles. I'm like curious mm-hmm. about those. What, what type of turtles do y'all have there? Not like all of them, but the ones, um, I, I think they're called staccatas. 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 Yeah. 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 I was like, what is that what it is? Those are cool. <laughs> uh, those are one of my favorites. They're, I heard this might've changed, but as far as I know, they're the third largest species, um, potentially debated, but they're from sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and they're massive. I mean, you remember gumbo who we yeah. have in the front yard. He's just, a, a, you still have them? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh my well, I mean, they're going to live for 150 yeah. years. I know. I'm burdening my great grandchildren. with all these. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, yeah, that's probably the most impressive, like size that we gumbo have. i love it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's such a cool cool turtle yeah well they all start with g's um it's just a thing that we started randomly by accident so we have like gumbo greta gertie grady just a bunch of <laughs> all, all, those, of, all staccatas yeah all of our staccatas are, are g's um That's so cool apart from that all kinds of um different species from mexico asia uh some of them are captive uh like zoo stock like i was telling you about some of them are um, just fun ones like the Sokatas, you know, so if, spectrum. If people who are listening to this <clears throat> are interested in getting into owning uh, a reptile, like what would you be, what would you say is like the intro reptile to um, things? And maybe go down the line of like lizard, snake, turtle. Definitely not a turtle or tortoise. No, as much a, as I love them. As far as when you first start out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they just are, they have a lot of requirements and uh, if you think about where they live, they have a large home range, mm-hmm. a really diverse diet. Um, there's just a lot of things that can go wrong. Uh, you see the little red-eared sliders at like fairs a lot, yeah, which is terrible. Um, yeah, those usually only live for like a couple months. If you're doing really the best you can, being new to reptiles. Um, as far as things that I would get, ball pythons have always been one of my favorites that I recommend to people. Um, that was one of my first reptiles. They're great. I still have uh, camo is what I named them. Camo. Yeah. Um, I think geckos, of course. Crested geckos are great. Um, leopard geckos can make pretty good pets as well. A little more difficult, uh, totally different uh, kind of environment. Um, I There's also ones that like are commonly recommended that i wouldn't recommend like a bearded lizard um, oh okay they just have a very specific diet they need a certain amount of vegetables and fiber with calcium and if you don't nail it they're prone to a lot of uh pretty bad um health problems uh, especially like metabolic bone disease um so really just sticking to uh crusty geckos ball pythons corn snakes are another great one um yeah and there's a bunch of research online uh, when I always tell people to like before you buy any pet you should have the cage already set up everything ready absolutely dialed in you know it's like you would uh if you were buying a fish you would already have a tank already set up with the proper water and everything like <laughs> just you know. to leave it in this bowl for three days <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> but like people do that with reptiles because it's just this different they're like oh it'll be fine in this little container while we just get everything set up after we just bought it and it's like Please don't do that, you yeah. know, especially because like my dad's a vet. So I'm, I have that perspective, too. I've seen it when it all, you know, goes wrong. And right. Just there's there's great research and, and books and uh, information, obviously, online, being online. Not everything's great. So double check anything you hear. Sure. Um, and a lot of uh, 
vets and, and breeders too, if you're buying from um, someone at a reptile show, they're going to be more than happy to talk to you about how to take care of it. Um, if you want to go to Petco or PetSmart, then I would recommend kind of expanding your uh, information source. They Sometimes the people there don't really like, they feed it crickets every couple of days, but they're not going to be able to tell you the intricacies of the captive yeah. husbandry. Like, <clears throat> So I would buy it from like a breeder or someone who's like, this is their like everything kind Mm -hmm. of like they know everything they can possibly know about this one species that they have taken care of for a decade. Yeah. So yeah, I always go to the the best source. I'm, I'm the same way. Um, how big do bearded dragons get in the wild? Like, can they get huge or are they about that, you know, size that you see some of the larger ones at? They're about that standard size. Yeah. Yeah. Where Um, are they from? I believe from Australia, Australia. Yeah. Okay. So the, a lot of the ones in captivity too, we have this idea that like, the body shape and size that we see in captivity is kind of artificial. Like they're not that large and fat and lethargic. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, the ones in the desert in the wild are going to be like booking it. You know, they're not yeah. going to be sitting there like waiting for you to put them on your shoulder or something. Right. Like that's, not, <laughs> that's so funny to think about that. Yeah, There's a lot. What kind of creatures do you think? Um, well, maybe let's say this, that you've seen as pets that you're like, why would you have that? Like, have you ever seen or, or, or heard of anybody owning something that you're like, no, 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 oh, that's not sure. smart. <laughs> it depends on the person too. Yeah. Like sure. th- there's always someone who can do some species right. Of course. Um, I think some of the giant snakes are just like, I don't know. They're pretty funny to me when people have, you know, this like massive boa constrictor or reticulated python or something and they bring it to the reptile show and they get like the shock value and people taking pictures with them. I think they just like the like kind of the clout that comes with that. Uh, um, okay. Like that makes sense. Big uh, monitor lizards as well. Um, you know. Um, What's which, the biggest monitor lizard? Um, I mean, in the genus would be Komodo dragon. Oh, okay. Yeah, which are, you can't get because they're super protected. Yeah. But those guys are huge. Yeah, why would you want one of those things? I know, yeah. Well, and like, I um, I was at a zoo one time talking to the curator and he was like, oh, like, you want to come see the our Komodo dragons? And I was like, well, of course. Yeah. And it was crazy because we went in there with this curator and he brought like a, a pole with him and um, <laughs> he had another person who was just standing at the at the exit because there's like a one door that opens up into the back of the exhibits. Most museum uh, or not museum uh, zoo exhibits, the way they work is you have the glass where the public can like look in and then hidden behind a tree or a fake rock is like the door where zookeepers can access it from the back. Right. Because um, they kind of want it to have this guise of being like a natural mm-hmm. environment. So we went through the back fake rock door or whatever. And like immediately all of these massive lizards, Oof. like bigger than me by far, just like all turn and look at us. <laughs> and it was, you're like, Oh my gosh, it's like feeling of that. This thing could kill me in like 14 different ways in less than a minute, you know, but which was already terrifying enough. But then, he grabs the pole and he's like, all right, we got to stick together. We're going to go over here to like, look at this one. So we're looking at it <laughs> and we look back and it was like wolves. One of them had already blocked the exit. Oh, there was another one coming God. around by the glass and like they had already like, we're already circling and like getting, and these are like well-fed. They just have this instinct to just like corner and kill basically wow. anything that moves. Um, on the islands, the Komodo Islands, people die every year because they just get eaten. Like there was some there German tourists a couple of years ago that that like they didn't really find anything left. Uh, I think they found like a camera or some shoes or so. Like 
Yeah. And it was so like, <laughs> he was like, all right, yeah, I think it's uh, time for us to get out of here. <laughs> so he like goes with his big old stick and is like, like actively like pushing them away as they're like just cornering us. It was the craziest. Wow. I mean, it makes for a great story. And it was, but I was like, oh my gosh. Like, yeah. Was yeah. he, was he like a experienced? Uh, oh yeah. Zug, uh, mm-hmm. What are they called? Curators? Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, uh, I think. This was a while ago. I think he was one of the head veterinarians as well. Okay. So he totally knew what he was doing and he, he knew to expect that too. But for us, it was like total shock value. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh. Like, That's probably what he was getting at. Like, oh, I'm sure. Do. But like they're, they're velociraptors truly. I mean, they'll, they'll take down massive game like in packs like that and corner. I mean, really fast and agile creatures that are able to still like corner like that is pretty wow. incredible. Yeah. I always thought that they were the sneak up on you and bite you and then follow you for days. Type. They do that too. They do that too. Yeah. So they're just honestly, that's something that warrants more research. It's just the hunting patterns. I'm sure there's so much to uncover there. Yeah. I wonder if people are just going ham with drones right now, just researching all that type of stuff. I'm sure that would be the best. I mean, well, maybe the annoying like thing might do, you know, deter them as far as like, what is this buzzing always over my head? But um, they might behave differently because of that. But yeah, I'm super interested in how, Komodo dragons um, live their lives out there. It's so fascinating that you say that people get killed every year. I'm like, that, shouldn't that be a warning to everybody? Like, don't go out there. I think they have closed it down a lot more. Okay. This was a while ago when I heard that. And I think now, um, is it Indonesia that owns the, I think it's Indonesia that owns the Komodo dra- or the Komodo islands. But regardless, I think they've limited limited it a lot more yeah Um, i think these tourists were like in the 80s or it's i don't know i'd have to look into it again but yeah that's crazy that saliva of theirs i saw this uh oh god what do they do they took like a ham leg and a ham leg and they let the komodo dragon bite the ham leg on this one and then on the other one they let a human bite Hmm. right and the deterioration within three days like this thing was just gelatinized gone but the human bite actually shocked me the human bite was so rant. It very much looked like the same thing that was going on over here, just in a very slow pace because the necrotic tissue and the rot mm. that was probably like obviously our saliva compounded with the dead leg. But it, it was really shocking. But seeing what that Komodo dragon did to that one hog leg, I was like, dude, that is goo. So this yeah. probably was happening to you as you. Because can you explain a little bit about what is that venom and what happens? There's a lot of research on it right now. Um, and honestly, researchers haven't really come to like a great conclusion that everyone agrees on. But Varanus, that whole genus, um, there's so much that we don't know. There's evidence that it might just be like symbiotic bacteria and like this like just crazy amount of incredibly terrible bacteria that are able to survive in a Komodo dragon's mouth. And then... There's also a lot of evidence that there's venom involved too, which is personally what I, I mean, I can't um, imagine there's not. So there's people who think it's not actually a venomous yes. monitor. Yeah. There's people who think it's that it's bacteria. bacterial. Wow. Um, Talk about a symbiotic relationship. It'd be pretty crazy. Yeah. But also like, I think there is a lot of evidence that it, there is venom. Yeah. Um, I also haven't looked into it in like a couple of years, so that might all have changed by now, but I know other um, Varana species, there's also evidence of um, venom. So it just depends too, because that entire group is really diverse in what they eat. Like I have, 
Um, one of the skeletons that I'm working on right now is a Nile monitor, which um, has like these crushing teeth because they just eat mollusks. So it's almost like it looks like round, uh, like river stones is what all their teeth look like. Yeah. Just for crushing power. So obviously something like that wouldn't be venomous. Whereas like um, a crocodile monitor or something that's like eating birds has like razor sharp teeth um, that are just made to lacerate. Like it would be more likely to at least look for or expect venom in a species like that. So it's just an incredibly diverse group that, um, yeah, a lot of people are looking into the, the morphology and trying to find like venom glands or looking into the microbiomes or chemistry of the saliva. And yeah, there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening with that. Yeah. I want to know about that. Cause I know we know about venomous snakes, you know, hemotoxic, neurotoxic. And I wonder what cat, what category that that venom would fall under. Yeah. Yeah. I was at a research thing with, um, biology, the pit vipers, what it was called. And some of the research with, with all of those venoms is incredible. You know, I mean, and that was just pit vipers. Um, but like how it can change geographically, how it can change by like the prey items available. I mean, it, it it can get so dialed in in certain populations just to be like the most lethal. It's pretty incredible stuff. Yeah. And here in North America, our most venomous snake is the Mojave. Um, yeah, that's definitely one of them. Um, the Mojave Rattler. Yeah. In the Mojave Desert. Uh, so far west, Big Bend area up to El Paso and into, what would that be? New Mexico, all the way there, right? Some Yeah, all over the southwest. All over the southwest. Um, that's definitely one of the, the most venomous ones. Um, Hellerai is another species in like California that's also... What's, what's that one commonly called? Um, Hellerai. Hellerai. That's a great question. I can't think of the spe- common name right now. It'll come to I me. get that with the uh, trees and plants too. Yeah, like, I know. It's Celtis like got it. They're like, what is that? Like, oh, I think it's Hackberry. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there's a uh, a lot of dangerous animals out there, and we want just our listeners to know, like, be careful. And that's what I always tell people: is just know before you go. Like, know what it is that, and particularly, this is the one a lot of people over for, overlook: is the weather. Like, what are cycles of weather that could be potentially fluke and dangerous, but also fluke and dangerous animals and plants and things like that. So um, I just wanted to, oh, real quick, I had a question a while back when I was thinking about uh, you talking about your dad being a veterinarian. What is some of the, what's an animal that he may has, you know, operated on or done something with that you were just totally blown away by? Like, what? Dad, what did you just say you operated on? Or who brought in what today? Was there anything that you're like, somebody brought in a porcupine or somebody brought in a, and you're like, why do you have this? There's so many. <laughs> oh, no. There's so many. <laughs> Good. The most, also, it's, Please um, tell me one is an ostrich. Well, I wish. That'd be cool. <laughs> I'll never forget we were tracking. I don't remember if it was with your group or if it was one of the other younger homeschool groups, but I showed him a great blue heron track. And, oh, the, yeah. and the first kid was like, ostrich. It's just like, man, I wish, I wish that was an ostrich foot. I was like, how many ostriches do you run around or Austin? It's like, oh, oh yeah, that's, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, I just looked it up. It's a Southern Pacific rattlesnake. I knew ah. it was some Pacific something, but yeah. So no there you go. If any Southern of the listeners want to look it up. Pacific rattlesnake. Yeah. Pretty awesome species. Um, craziest ones. There was a massive monitor lizard when I was growing up that would routinely come to the clinic that was just like oh because of poor health uh no he was just a routine client who would just come in for checkups and it was oh. like a dog and like he it was the sweetest monitor lizard which I know sounds ridiculous but like I was super small at the time and like could just like 
like sit on this thing and just like Whoa. go say hi to it and it was just this i mean massive massive lizard that was a really cool one um also like some of the some of the um exotic snakes and stuff are really cool um uh all kinds of just really unique ones um there was one that was uh this wasn't actually at the clinic but there was a you know how people are with rattlesnakes they're terrible to them some someone in Bastrop had shot a endangered timber rattlesnake with a um a bolt from a crossbow and it was still like embedded in the head um it had gone from the back of the head out through the throat and it didn't kill it so u.s fish and wildlife was trying to find the person who did it while also trying to save the snake um so also quick side note don't kill rattlesnakes they're great yeah um especially don't kill endangered ones that are super super rare here but the problem with that one is they have tubes that you use for venomous snakes to safely um, work with these. So you can feed the head into a tube so that it can't turn around. And then you can either anesthetize it or hold it there so that you can do surgery or um, measurements like morphometrics in the field or scale counts, whatever. It's just like the best way. You really should never be touching a venomous snake. That's what we have a bunch of tools for. But if you have to, the tubes are the, the safe way to do it. The problem was um, this bolt had gone right through the quote unquote danger end. So there was like, it was really hard to get it so that we could uh, anesthetize it and then be able to remove that bolt. Um, We did manage to, we were able to kind of squeeze it into a tube um, really safely. And uh, um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife was there like, wow, to like help assist where they could. And um, I was just there because I thought it was the coolest thing ever. And I kind of had a shoe in for it, you know? Um, but then like the recovery from there was really cool. We would put, um, like antibiotics and uh, clean the wound with like really long Q-tips to like go th- up through the tube. And then, um, unfortunately the snake didn't make it. Oh, yeah. dang it, man. Um, I was hoping this was the best. I wish. End. I was yeah, like, I know. Oh my God. There's a lot of, a lot of effort for kind of a really, a really crappy situation, but it would have been the exact same story as that book. Uh, I don't know if it's down there on my shelf right now. It's called Arrowhawk. Somebody mm-hmm. shot a red tail hawk with an archery bow, I guess a compound bow pierced through its wing and part of its, you know, breast. This mm. thing lived for three or four weeks wow. just flying around and they bagged it. Finally extracted the arrow out and this thing is fine. Wow. And I was like, wow, man. And it, there's this store, the guy who tried to bag it, followed it for those three weeks. Mm-hmm. And he just has this whole story about all of its hunting attempts and the way it got caught in certain branches when it would fly to get, doves and mice and it was like wow this poor thing like how and there was moments where he would see with binoculars like it would run into something and blood would start draining out of it again and he just said he's just like felt so terrible and the if you want to read the story it's like i said it's called arrow hawk it's a really beautiful book for kids and um it's a true story but man i would have been so impressed if that snake had made it dude yeah getting shot through the throat i know and having to repair that well and then i mean the good thing and bad thing about reptiles is their metabolism is so slow that they take forever to get better, but also take forever to die. So like oh. those things advance so slowly and they don't need to eat for a while. So who knows how long it gone without food. And it was just like, it was just a, a crappy combination. Yeah. But the, um, the specimen after that was donated to the university of Texas collections, um, since it's a super endangered species from a super rare range. So it'll still be used for future um research and, and it'll be a good specimen but it is um 
kind of a, I, I wish it was a full turnaround. That would have been really cool. Yeah. So. You know, now that I, now that you say that, I'm like, Hmm, I have a timber rattlesnake skin from Texas in my nature museum. Like, I wonder if it's super rare or one of the ones, cause it was just given to me by my grandmother's like neighbor killed it because it kept going over to my grandmother's house and mm-hmm. she was like, what do we do with the skins? She's like, give it to my grandson. So I want you to look at it yeah. and when we get done you can tell me what you think. It's big. Wow. It's like wide. Wow. Like a yeah. big old monster. Um, yeah. So for people listening, what is it, what are some things that people can do to not be bitten by these things in your, in your opinion? Um, I mean, at the end of the day, you really just, it comes from some level of mutual respect. Like venom in an ecosystem is incredibly valuable and incredibly important. And snakes don't want to use it unless they have to. Yeah. Um, and for a lot of snakes, not all, but for a lot of snakes, it's not strictly a defensive measure. Like it is to take down prey and to feed. Um, so snakes are coming at any scenario not that they're necessarily conscientious of it, but biologically they, they don't want to have to bite you. Um, and they're going to do everything they can to avoid you. I know there's a lot of stories of people be like, oh, you know, it was, it was coming right for me. Um, and in a lot of cases, especially with like moccasins, like you and I were talking about earlier, like that's because it's safe place, it's whole, it's hide is right behind you. And it's willing to risk getting around you to feel somewhere safer because it doesn't know what's on the other riverbank or it doesn't know if there's another predator waiting for it. Um, snakes will very rarely actually come at you because that's just not how they're programmed. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as not getting bit, I mean, obviously there's the the just being really careful in the outdoors. I go to snake heavy places all the time because it's one of my hobbies and um i have friends who have had we call them legitimate bites um an illegitimate bite uh, which is actually something that they'll write down in the emergency room if you come in with a snake bite so an illegitimate bite is you were handling it um you were doing something silly usually situations that start with hey bobby hold my beer kind of thing right you know you're coming after the snake or you're trying to tail it or you're just not wow that's called an illegitimate bite Mm -hmm. Mm, negligence um yeah actually one of my friends got tagged by a hillary um because he just stepped over a log and it was on the other side and hit him in the ankle um so things like that are can happen i mean it happens to anyone you know but that was classified as a legitimate bite right because he was out there looking for them but he wasn't harassing it right he was doing everything respectfully he was being really careful wearing jeans all the things it's just I mean, that's how the outdoors is. Sometimes things don't go as planned and you have to just adapt to it. You yeah. Know? Um, I mean, you of all people have a respect for that, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, um, but definitely the first thing is just a mutual respect for the animal and the animal doesn't want to mess with you. Um, on top of that, don't handle it. Um, if you have to move it, you can call um, a number of people um, in the Austin area um, or really just animal control in general. Um, and, also, too, like killing a snake and or moving it, that ecological niche is still going to be there. So the likelihood of another snake coming in and filling that is also pretty high. Right. So if you are have a really mature, just massive um, adult Western Diamondback, let's say, and you remove it from a field, first of all, wherever you move it to is probably not going to thrive very well because either there's another snake that's competing in that new area or it's just all of its certain game trails, all of its known honey holes for hunting or like, it just changes everything. Yeah. Um, I've heard that the success around like animal, you know, relocation is very, very low. Yeah. Yeah. Still, 
better than the alternative, um, but just something to keep in mind. Um, on the other side of that, too, is like that just opened up this ecosystem to needing another apex predator. So the likelihood of a, a younger snake coming in and filling that is, I mean, very high, very now. high. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not that in every situation too, I understand that a lot of people with either small kids or dogs, like don't want a massive rattlesnake in their backyard, you yeah, know, we which, get that. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Um, but if you're out in like hikes, um, early morning, especially you might see one crossing the trail, something like that. It's just sit there, wait for it to cross, take pictures if you want to safely. Um, obviously my approach to it would be a little more like. I'd be super thrilled. Yeah. Like I'd Let's be running at, yeah. <laughs> you know, but we have the tools to do so though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and like, I always carry, even on bike rides, sometimes I'll carry tools with me. Cause yeah, I'm the, why not? Sequel, so yeah, sequel stuff. In my car, I have like a, a day grab bag for herping. You know, yeah. if I'm like, Oh, herping is snake hunting. Comes yeah. from herpetology. <laughs> um, but yeah, or like lizard hunting or lizard. Hunting. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, let's say I'm like in the morning, I'm like driving in the middle of New Mexico and there's like some really cool looking rock slide. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to go, I'm going to go jump out and go check this out. Oh, know? that's so, so cool. Yeah. It becomes kind of an obsession. It's like birding, but yeah, but yeah. Um, so you've got a lot of experience in the world of naturalist studies and you got out of high school and where did you go from there? What are you doing now? You're 19 years old. I am 19 years old. <laughs> I guess what I'm asking is tell us about this thing you've joined, this conservation corps. Yeah. So I got out of high school and um, always been super interested in academia, but wanted to take a break, kind of reorient myself. Um, and that's been my plan since middle school, um, maybe even a little bit earlier. I mean, I, I think I've talked to you about it before, mm-hmm. before it happened. Like that's, I've always wanted to take a break from school and really just go out and kind of see the world, just do things. Um, it was always an abstract kind of an idea, but, um, when COVID hit that like really cemented it. Yeah. Um, and my plan had always been to go globe trotting, um, especially from herpetology conferences and connections. Like I, I know people all over the world and I was going to go bounce around to Indonesia, Belize, Australia, like go look for cool snakes and hang out and kind of see the world. Um, but during a pandemic, obviously that was not so one of the other things that I was looking at was Peace Corps. That was like a two-year um, commitment, so I wasn't really ready for that. And again, COVID. So I started looking domestic, and I found AmeriCorps. Um, and Amer- AmeriCorps is a massive umbrella of like multiple different really cool service things. Uh, and I've always been really interested in service, but didn't really want to do the military. Um, so I kind of chased that down to got to the Conservation Corps, um, which is a lot like the CCC that we did in the 30s. So basically what I did is I would, um, I joined this and then I was based out of Arizona and I would go all over the Southwest building trail. Um, we would do logging projects, uh, tree thinning, herbicide, invasive species removal. I mean, it was a massive, um, array of projects, a lot of rock work. Um, yeah, just a, a really, really awesome experience. And I'm coming off of that. Uh, got back to Austin a couple days ago. So I was there. I did a 12 month term. Most people usually do like three months. So 12 solid months. It's been, jeez. Yeah. It's been a trip for sure. Yeah. Um, and where were you? I was, so I was based out of Flagstaff. Um, I spent, 
probably 10 or 11 of those months in Arizona and would occasionally bounce out of state. Um, Are you allowed to pick where you go? Mm, yes and no. It depends on what projects are available. It kind of depends on the amount of core members that we have. Um, they're usually sort of flexible. Um, so like I loved the Grand Canyon. That's where I started last summer and I was able to request to go back there at the end of my term. Um, but I, you know, you can also request like, oh, you know, I really want to try herbicide, let's say, which I did, um, an invasive species. And then I was sent to Bosque National Refuge to go work on projects there. So there's a little bit of leeway, um, but there's also contracts. So you kind of get a little bit thrown around too, um, which is also kind of part of the fun. Some of the projects that I got thrown on, like it was total shot in the dark and ended up loving them. So, nice. yeah. And when you're there, like what are some of the, <clears throat> like, how does it all work? Like, let's say you, is it like you said you didn't want to go the military route, but is it like military recruitment? Do the Conservation Corps and the AmeriCorps go around to high schools and look for people wanting to do this? And what is their, you know, task beyond, you know, my my idea of like the CCC, what you were saying it's very similar to is like the people who I think built like Big Bend trails and mm -hmm. stuff like that, right? So you were in Flagstaff and kind of based out of there. And were you going into various national parks to do projects? Were you doing research? Like the, the Conservation Corps ideally is like infrastructure in these mega mm -hmm. parks, right? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we would go into national parks quite a bit. Uh, national parks, national forests, or Bureau of Land Management land Yeah, um, was our primary focus there was a couple urban ones that we had um like one of the ones recently was flagstaff during monsoons the infrastructure was not really built to deal with that level of rain and it's getting worse every year um so we had a couple months where it was just sandbagging is what we called it where we were just making thousands of sandbags and placing them all over the all over the sea i mean it looked like a it looked like a like a war zone it was crazy like it looked like a video game or something yeah. um so that's outside of our typical work, but we were able to get it through the AmeriCorps grant because it was in Flagstaff. It was kind of an, an at-home situation and uh, still conservation. Yeah. Um, but the majority that we did, so like I started, uh, I signed up for the Grand Canyon and I just did a three-month term, which 80% of core members do. They do three months in and out. They have a great experience and they leave. Um so I figured I would just start with that. So I signed up for the Grand Canyon. It was a special project. I got shipped out there and it was week on week off. Well, almost. So I have eight days where I'm working. Uh, you work a 10 hour shift and then you do camp life. So we trade off chores for dinner, dishes, all of those things. And then you sleep in a tent um, and then keep at it for the whole way. So you have 88 working hours on hitch is what we call it. And then you have six days off in Flagstaff to pretty much do whatever you want. Um, I would usually go explore. So once I got my car out there, I would just go to Southern Arizona and look for snakes. I would go um, cruise over to New Mexico, look for stuff there, just explore national parks. And like, it's really cool. Cause now I'm going to college in Arizona and I'm like very well versed in all these really awesome spots. Um, but the Canyon was mostly trail work. So we were on the South rim uh, the bright angel trail working with the mule packers. Um, and that was really cool. The, um, Marlboro man from like the eighties commercials riding the Bronco. Yeah. Uh, he was a packer at the South room. So I was Ed Forbes. So like 
I was hanging out with the Marlboro man building trail. Like really? Yeah. Wait, what? Yeah. The guy? The the man himself. Yeah. I thought that guy died. No, he's <laughs> he's uh, still keeping on. Whoa. He's like one of those people who just like refuses to stop working and wow. just like How old living is it. Um it's gotta be like 70, 80. Oh at least, yeah. Wow. But he's just still out there. Away. Still out there on a mule. Does he still smoke cigarettes? Oh yeah. Oh my like god. A and he was, How he was does so people funny. do that? I know. He was the best guy. I mean like just salt of the earth. Like I remember wow. one time oh, I bet. we were working in the dirt pits because the problem with the Grand Canyon is it's obviously all water flows downhill. So all the dirt on the trails is gone after every rain event. So you have to bring in dirt from oh. the rim or from a dirt pit where they mill it out um, and then put it on mules with quick release bags and dump it on the trail again and then tamp it down and then just basically wait for the next weekend when it's all going to be gone again. Like oh, it's crazy uphill battle. I so, just put some rebar in there and start throwing logs down in there. They have timber checks too. Okay. But those also in the, the dry rot from the canyon, they're gone pretty quick too. Jeez. But, but yeah, That's one time, crazy. so our, our entire crew was like out there just, just killing it in the dirt pits. And he came up in his, with his mule string to do the first round. And he was like, oh, you know. I wanted to bring you all a treat, so I made these for you. And he pulls out like a Cinnabon thing with like the wrapper still on it. He's like, you know, it's a family recipe, and he's like handing out these Cinnabons. <laughs> it was like a free package. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. <laughs> he was he was just that kind of guy, just like I so funny, it. but great, great guy. Sherwin too is another packer. Just these like just fantastic people. Um, really awesome to work with them. And but yeah, I mean, it was crazy. And people too, like, because we had radios, so we kind of get the behind the scene of a national park. Like we, we are not tourists. Like we're seeing the, the dirt pits and the, the craziness behind closed fences. And people don't realize how much it takes to run a national park. Like oh, that. I couldn't imagine. And people also too, like the American public has this idea that national parks are super safe because it's a national park. It's the grand Canyon. And like, they're not like, they're like, well, they are as much as they can be, but it's still the wilderness, you know, it's still nature. That's part of the allure of it. And like, yeah. The things you would hear over the radio, just the craziest stuff, you know, like rock slides and crazy wildlife and like people getting like hurt and having to have medevacs because when you're in the canyon, you can't, I mean, you have to get like helicoptered out and just, yeah. like, it was it was pretty cool. It was a, a pretty incredible experience. So, and that was only like my first three months of the core too. So. Yeah. Well, you were telling us that there were some bizarre and strange experiences that you had. Yep. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. One of my, uh, one of my favorite projects was picket post, which is kind of near the superstitions. Um, it's in a similar area as the, uh, the story of the Apache tears where a bunch of Apache warriors were cornered by the U S military and chose, um, kind of like a death over dishonor and leapt from the cliffs. Um, and the story goes as they were falling to the ground, they, they cried, obsidian so you can find um nice yeah that's what that jar is oh, entirely wow. filled with super cursed by the way oh <laughs> my god get it out of here aiden um <laughs> <laughs> so at the base of that cliff you can find the tears of the apache natives so because of that it's ancestrally cursed land where we were and we were this was a backcountry project so we were super isolated um it was a team of five of us so we were 18 miles from anything. And uh, there's the Arizona Trail, which runs, I think it's like 800 and something miles, um, basically straight through Arizona, kind of 
dodges around a little bit to see some of the sites, but there's a lot of through hikers, but that's pretty much it. This was one of the most secluded passages of the Arizona trail. So like we were there for three, two or three hitches and we saw maybe like three people. It was crazy. And like, it's only eight days, but you, you kind of start to like go crazy out there because yeah, it's, it's just imagine. the same people. And all of those people that I was with, like, they're the type of people that I feel like I'm going to know in like 20 years. Like, cause you just, you, you like trauma bond almost. Cause yeah. you're like, you're in the trenches, you know, like you're <laughs> trauma bond. Yeah. Like you're out there like swinging a pick for a 10 hour shift, going home, like eating like maybe 800 calories like wow. i lost seven pounds in a week like nice it's just, <laughs> oh, that's terrible yeah well i mean i don't have seven pounds to lose i was so gonna I was say you like, don't have it to lose yeah it was crazy so but just like just weird stuff i remember my crew lead one time like popped up at like three in the morning just scared out of his mind and he was like you know like um said that he had like heard something and we're all like looking around and just like, you're out there. We saw eye shine once or twice from like mountain lions. I found mountain lion tracks in camp. Um, just like, you're just, you're really out there. You're really in the sticks, you know? Um, the weird one that I had, I usually bring a trail camera with me on hitch. Um, just cause I love wildlife. I love seeing what's out there. So I found the mountain lion tracks. I'd set it up kind of looking at my tent, um, with the mountain lion tracks and uh, I hadn't found the tracks at the time. This was just like first day setting up camp, had the camera. And uh, that night there was like these these lights that just kept spinning around my tent. And I just kind of assumed that like someone was messing with me, you know, because like we would totally do that. Like when you're out in the field, like we're all messing with each other all the time. And I was like, oh, you know, it's someone, someone's playing, uh, trying to get me, you know. So the next morning uh, I was like, you know, hey, was anyone like out last night? And, uh, no one was. And, um, the only person that I know that would do that to me was like pretty serious. He's like, nah, dude, like out here on a back country, like I wouldn't mess with you like that. Like that would be way too spooky. So second night happens again, lights just spinning over my tent. I hear like running footsteps, like coming in and out, just really strange. And it just like keeps repeating. So, um, luckily I have my trail camera though. So I pull the camera out I look at the SD card and you can't look at the pictures in the field, but it'll say it has like a counter. And since the first night it had taken like 30 or 40 photos. So I was like, okay, well clearly there's something cause it's getting triggered. Uh, it's looking at my tent. Like there's something happening here, you know? So I, um, closed it back up, turned it back on, put it in the case, whatever went to work. Um, and there's just every night, like footsteps, weird noises, stuff spinning around my tent, like spooky, things you know but like and I I mean you know I'm not a superstitious person like there's like uh there's weird stuff that happens out there for sure you know you hear the craziest ghost stories and sightings and Bigfoot and SWs and like just crazy stuff all the time especially from you know um people on the res but I was still I was like you know like it's spooky it's my imagination I'm out here with a great group of people but not very many people in the middle of nowhere so Finally, we're off project. I get back to housing. I plug it into one of my uh, friend's computers. And like for context, the week prior, I had done the same thing on a different project, got a bunch of picture of deer, cameras working fine, no problems, whatever. I used it the week after this, got pictures of some squirrels and deer, no problems, camera works fine, still works fine. Plug it in, pictures come up, a bunch of error codes, and it's like none of the pictures will load, and then it just says 
failure to read on every single one. And then they all just start self-deleting from the computer. No. Every single photograph. Yeah. And then now it just has an, now I just have an empty SD card within like 30 seconds of plugging it in. I was like, oh my. Wow. I was, oh, I still get goosebumps from it. I was like, oh boy. What? Yeah. So, dude. It's crazy. Unbelievable. Crazy. Went back the next week, same, same project. And like, I mean, in backcountry, everything goes wrong. So, like, we ran out of water. Like, my crew leader got an infected eye and had to be evac'd out. Like, there was a crazy hike that we had to do with tools. Like my feet were bleeding at the end of it. Just like everything just went and hit the fan. It was just. Wow. Yeah. Crazy out there. So. See, my brain always just wants to like figure out what that type of stuff oh, is. Too. Cause I'm just like, man, there's gotta be a scientific explanation for all of it. Right. Yeah. Well, but, I mean, you and I of all people are right, really, in, yeah. right. We're like, <laughs> man, what could that be? How bizarre the footsteps coming in and out of like a rapid pace, the lights over, you know, what's interesting is nobody else uh, had anything to say about it, right? Yeah. Like, oh, they all, I mean, I'm still best buds with all of them. And they all still swear to this day that none of them were screwing with me. You know? Well, like, and not only that, but they didn't experience, like, they didn't hear anything. They didn't mm, see anything. They didn't. One of them on one day said that he thought he might have heard something. Like, might have heard something coming from my, my tent. But that was. Dude. Yeah. See, I think I would I would have done the same thing you did. I would have. Because I have battery packs everywhere I go, mm-hmm. I would just plug my phone in, just click that sucker on, just leave it charging and recording all night. Mm-hmm. Like man, I would if the delete uh, the data off that got deleted too. Boy, howdy, you know something's oh yeah weird. I mean, it was a backcountry, so, so bizarre. You know, because that's what people want when you hear stories like this. They're like, yeah, okay, we're evidence or else, right? And you're 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 full right. Of it. I know it's everything about it is like a perfect like yeah, but that's so bizarre, man. Yeah. Like I've. I want to say that I've heard a story similar where a friend was like, man, something keeps happening. And that the photo, like he tested it out multiple times, like took photos, took photos, took photos, everything looked fine. And he's like, all right, sweet. So when it comes by, I'm going to capture this thing. And it was just always black, Mm. like all the time. And he's like, I don't understand. You know, I'm like, I don't know, man. Somebody's maybe covering it up. I'll tell you a crazy story. Um, Maybe I told you this one time. There was a guy. Well, remember when you and me, we did a summer camp, uh, an overnight summer camp in San Antonio and with Miles and a couple of other kids. That property behind to the south um, had a bunch of animal traps like all over the place for just raccoons and various things. And I don't think the guy did anything with him. He would just like get their paw and then just like go out there with 22 and just blast them. And I knew that was happening. So I was like, man, this is terrible. So I jumped the fence and I saw one of his game cams pointed at his traps so I snuck around and I took off, I had a long sleeve tur- t-shirt, but another t-shirt underneath it. And I swung the t-shirt around and caught the other sleeve and pulled it onto the game cam and tied it. But I didn't know the dude had another one pointed the same way. So I go out there and I release all these raccoons that are just trapped with their little feet, you know, by basically just throwing a box over them. And then, you know, with the, we, we had this like prong thing. If we couldn't get the box to stay, we would just like get their neck you know, like down with the prong yep. and then they would just, they couldn't bite. So we'd release it and then they'd run off. But man, that guy showed up at our property, Sam and Sutral, and they had like photos of mm. me doing that. And I was like, oh man, I was like, I felt like crap. But I think what ended up happening was we replied with like, look, we have evidence, you know, you have evidence of me trespassing, but we have evidence of you torturing animals. It's like wildlife. That's, that's not okay. So I was like, so checkmate, I guess. Yeah. So which way are you, do you want to go with this? Do you want to report us about trespassing? Well, or do you want to stop doing what you're doing? And I think he ended up like moving them just to another 
part of his property. He kept doing it. There was like hog traps out there. He would just leave them in there. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't do anything with them. So the my my you know experience with this game trail cameras have always been uh, odd to me too. So, but man, that's a wild story you told. That is a really wild story. And does anybody else have anything like that that happened to them? Like on maybe what I mean is when you were coming in, uh, was there anybody else who was already there and been like, man, these crazy things have happened to me like that too? Or was that the first time the the AmeriCorps was like, what? Um. Oh, yeah. There was – on this project, we were the first ones there and the last ones out. So I don't know if there was anything else that happened to anyone else there. Oh, that's so spooky. Um. But other projects, yeah. I mean, we had – we had a Bigfoot uh, one like two years ago. Um, yeah, tell the, us about that one. The Mogollon Rim, um, I think I'm pronouncing that right. It's part of the Prescott National Forest. And like, I will say to the side, Prescott, I was there for three or four months. And that's also one of the spookiest places I've been. Because like there's, I think it's very normal to have that feeling of like kind of being watched wherever you are. But like, I mean, I live out of the woods and I always have far before this you know like yeah. the woods is very much so my home and like oh yeah you can kind of fight that feeling when you get it you know and it's like you also learn especially when you're out there to kind of like watch the birds and other animals because they can give signs of predators and like you just get in tuned with it you know and it was just it stands to be one of the most just intangibly creepy places i've been where wow. like it's just like every time you're out like it's just weird like there was one we take gps and my so my second six months with the Corps, I was an assistant team leader. So I was basically like first mate to the crew lead. Uh, and one of my jobs was to go and record GPS. And um, we saved it for the last day. I don't remember why. There was some logistical problem. So I had to hike 16 miles in a day to go get all of our GPS points and waypoints and like hike back. And I feel like I generally have pretty good geospatial awareness. Um but that was the first time in my life where I got like completely lost like to the point where I was like, I am going to be out here for days. Whoa. It was crazy. And I had a GPS like I should not have. I mean, you know, that shouldn't have happened. But I like I was on the trail, walked through a field where I could see the trail on the other side, turned around, couldn't find the trail, went, tried to go back, couldn't find the trail. Oh, man. And I was just in this meadow, like went into the tree line got lost in the Ponderosas. I was lost for like three or four hours, like just roaming around. Like, <laughs> it was How bad. did you finally get out? What I finally did is I, so I've been taking waypoints of all of our different um, projects. So I found the nearest waypoint and then hiked to that waypoint on the GPS and then was able to triangulate where I was from there and get back to the drill. Nice. But if I didn't Smart have that thinking. GPS, yeah. But if I didn't have that GPS, like, Oh boy. I, I mean, I would have had to just follow the sun and just basically head until I knew where there was a, a fire road, you know, yeah, to the west breaks, yeah. and then just keep going. I mean, I mean, I would have, I'm very confident I would have eventually found it, but it might've taken a day or two. And wow. if I hadn't come back to camp, like they could have sent out a search and rescue. And you know, I never told my crew leader this, hopefully he's not listening because I didn't want to <laughs> freak him out because I felt bad that I got lost. Um, but like stuff like that, like just the Prescott wilderness is, is crazy. It's like the pine barrens of the Southwest. Like you can go out there and just disappear. Wow. Um, now you make me want to go. You should. I love I'd the pine highly barrens. recommend it. Yeah, the Pres- Prescott is, that's one of the places that I, I really do want to go back to and like do a backcountry by myself out there. And yeah. Like bring a 22 and disappear for two weeks, you know, like that would really be amazing. Yeah. So, but that was just one of the craziest ones. And there was, um, I was, so two years ago ish, um, there was a crew out there that had heard about the Moglin monster, which is like 
the Prescott Wilderness is Bigfoot. Um, some of the indigenous peoples in that area say that it's the spirit of the white man who like came in and was like pillaging um, the natural area. Um, but there's been stories about forever that he's like eight feet tall, glowing red eyes. Um, not necessarily uh, like super aggressive, but territorial. Um, and I've also never been a huge Bigfoot believer um, just because we don't really have any ecosystems in the U.S. that could support a giant ape. You know, you kind of need like tropical um, Ecuadorian areas like the Congo to really be doing that. But regardless, I was skeptical. Sure. But I heard this story from a couple core members. Um, one of them who was like best friends with the crew leader who was who was actually on this hitch. But uh, they were out doing paperwork uh, from the GPS, the assistant team lead and the crew lead, and they were in a riverbed. And they heard these footsteps approaching and they assumed it was either someone going to use the restroom um, or like a, a bear or something. And they look around this bend in the river and there's just this massive creature just like sitting there staring at them. So they both like like jolt up and it um, charges them and like goes right up against them, brushes one of them and then just keeps going and like disappears into the woods. Uh so they, like, heard about the the monster, like, associated it with that, like, brought in the rest of the crew, had, like, crew meeting, decided to evacuate, packed up camp that night and left, drove wow. out. And, like, the Prescott where we were was a six-hour drive from Flagstaff, seven, well, six or seven hours, yeah. And, like, Prescott's not that far from Flagstaff. So it was two hours on a highway and then four hours down a, a country road. So you're deep you know, like really, really deep. And I was the first hitch to ever be sent back to that area since that incident happened. And, uh, cause like even the conservation organization that I worked for, like took it seriously. Um, I don't know if because they were concerned about it or because they just didn't want members to feel unsafe. But yeah, I was like, you're was, like, send me. I, I want to go. We were like the first group to just get, I would have instantly, my, my first thought would have been, what's the substrate that they were on? Because that would have been the first thing. Is like, did it leave any tracks? Yeah, no, it was um, it was all like alluvium and like because oh. it was a riparian zone. So yeah, that was my thought too. My personal inclination uh, is that it was like a bipedal black bear, um, because that is a recorded thing where by where black bears will kind of stagger around on two feet. Um, I also have hesitancy about the fact that its eyes were glowing because that lens, um name's escaping me right now but the lens at the back of the eye primates don't have that um so for it to be like a bigfoot it would either have to be like a super evolved uh like group or a lemur which doesn't really make a lot of sense some other kind of persimian primate you're or, talking about like when you look at a cat's eye and like right when you shine a light reflect. Mm -hmm. yeah because like yeah. coyotes wolves things right. like that yeah humans don't have that right um no other great ape has that uh but bears do so like the fact that they shined a light and the eyes glowed too also kind of makes me wonder. Yeah. Um, regardless, it's a good, it was a good campfire story. You oh know? yeah. And especially cause we were there. So we told the story to all that. We had a bunch of new core members who were oh, like boy. brand new to the core. And we're like, Oh, <laughs> do you guys let's, know where we are right now? Like <laughs> let's initiate you properly. Yeah. I was like, do you know what happened in these accursed lands? 18 months, you know, like we made it sound like, you know, a whole wow. Bit. But yeah, it was, it was a good story. So, yeah. So that's what I think about, you know, is, what you said, which is, I don't, you know, you didn't want to go to college. 
and you wanted some experiences and that's how I've always been. I mean, you probably know that is like, I don't care about all the other stuff. Like I just want experiences. Mm. That's all I care about. Yeah. So I will literally go into debt to just have like a really cool experience and to do something really exciting and unique. And that's, that's amazing that there's an opportunity for people to just take, you know, kids who want to go, do something like that. But like you said, not join the military, but still be a part of something. And so I'm glad that the AmeriCorps is still around and it's still a thing. Do you get paid for doing that? Sort of. So we're still volunteers. Um, Is it like a nonprofit? It's got to be like a nonprofit. You said you're getting grants and things like that. It's like a nonprofit for profit. So it's like a kind of an in-between. It's actually like a legal term is to say nonprofit for profit. So they make money off of contracts that we fulfill and then that money is either put back into materials and like tools or some of it goes to um, various other programs and things like that. Um, but we make, so you get something called um, a Siegel Education Award. It's not very much. I mean, I, I worked for 12 months and I think it was a little over $6,000. So given the cost of college right now, you know, not a ton, but it's yeah. still, a, it's a drop in the bucket. It's like 500 bucks for just living expenses. Right. Basically. So then, yeah, every two weeks you make, um, like 400. So it's, you get housing, which is nice. It's oh, like, okay. it's like barracks. That's um, nice. it's, well, it's a residential home with just bunk beds everywhere. Um, and then the 400 bucks is good for like, for me, it was gas money. You know, because I could go do my trips to southern Arizona and go explore, and it was enough to cover, like, groceries. Yeah. Um, The nice thing, too, is you only really have, like, 12 off days per month. So that's the only 12 days where you actually have expenses, you know, housing not being one of them. So if you really just sat in housing and ate, like, leftover food from hitches, like, you could save more money. Um, But, I mean, like you said, experience is over money. So I was – I blew my stipend every time to go – explore down by the border and go do things and you know absolutely yeah that's such a beautiful area have you ever been up to utah not really no i was on the north rim that's how i finished out my term and you could see utah and you're pretty much on the border but no i never never went up there yet so utah's gorgeous like going up to arches and canyon lands and all those places moab yeah do some climbing out there yeah well what now what do you so you're done with the core you're in college you're in arizona you said Yes, University of Arizona in Tucson. And you're studying? Evolutionary biology, ecology and evolutionary biology. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and what's the goal with that? I really want to do field work. I kind of want, I love this lifestyle of just being out there in the boonies. I could see it. You know, yeah. It's so awesome. So, so proud of you. I appreciate (laughs) it. Yeah. It's been, it's been awesome. So, and like the core was good for that, for really cementing that for me. Cause I mean, we were really truly in the trenches out there. And if I can still love it doing all that stuff, then like, I feel like it's for me, you know? Yeah. But I want to do research. Um, ideally, like herpetology. I was looking into zooarchaeology as well, which is kind of cool, where you're looking at like um, zoological specimens on human archaeology sites and trying to kind of like draw conclusions as to why they're there, whether Whoa. it's like uh, burials or pets or food. Um, so that's one that I might look into as well. Interesting. But I like that. Yeah. Both require like an undergraduate and biology so i have a little time to decide but sounds good just want to be out there digging or looking for stuff you know exploring all day always i know man that's what i did i was like how do i just like play games and goof off and i didn't want to grow up but i and i also like wanted to live in the woods and i just wanted to be outside every day 
And that's all I wanted to do. And I was like, man, we've got to make this a reality. And that's how Natureversity was born. So those of you who are listening, don't give up. I always tell the kids uh, at school, I say, you know, there's people out there. Like I know this lady, uh, Neon Emu. She was like the best hula hooper in the world. Well, that's what she claims. And uh, maybe she doesn't claim that. Maybe I just saw her one time and was like, she's amazing. Now I've seen her a lot of times. But she did that. You know, like she was like, I want to be a hula hooper. And now she makes hula hoops that, you know, they provide for her well. And there's that. And then there's that guy who's like the fastest gunslinger in the world. He's like a six-year-old kid. He's like, I'm the fastest gunslinger in the world. And now he is. I saw that, yeah. Like like CBS like calls him out to like just shoot watermelons and stuff. He's like, don't blink, you'll miss it. And they're like, what happened? He's like, you missed it. And so put off six rounds. Yeah, yeah. like what the heck? So I tell the kids all the time, it doesn't matter what it is that you're doing, just as long as you, I, I say, icky guy, right? There's four, like a Venn diagram, four circles. And in the top circle, it's that which you are good at, right? And you're really good at shooting guns and making hula hoops and stuff. It's that which the world needs, right? The world needs entertainment. The world needs inspiration. The world needs dance and theater and art and music. So there's that checked off. You got um, that which you're passionate about, And obviously, if you're good at it, you're probably passionate. And then finally, it's that which you can be paid for. Mm -hmm. So when those four circles come together, right there is a little star. And that star is known as Ikigai. So the goal for Natureversity and all of these kids is, I think, what you've done, Grayson, which is find your Ikigai. It's like you don't know know, how it's going to exactly fall into, you know, place this big puzzle. But in the end, like, you've got this idea that, you want to do something with it. And that's what I want all of the people listening to this to find. You know, don't do something that's going to drive you into the ground and make you regret life at the end. So I am just really enthralled by you following this dream of yours. And I know your parents are too, and uh, your sister as well, and your whole family. So, and your friends. Right. So we're all just super proud of you. And thank you so much for coming on this podcast. And you got to talk to your dad to come on on next too. Yeah. Because <laughs> he would tell me a million stories too, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, there's anything else you want to leave us with? Um, no, I don't think so. I do like what you said about the AK guy. Like I was actually heard about that like last week. Um, I don't know. It, yeah. It's all of those things, you know, like no one's ever just like born good at something, you know, mm-hmm. and like with my stuff with skeletons, which I'm like really delving into right now, it's, you know, you, um, that's something I knew nothing about until some random project that I did in middle school and met the university of Texas curators. And like, yeah. they're like, Hey, here's this chemical process and these germested beetles and all this stuff. And Oh, you just, it was, it was a rabbit. I know. That was yeah. It. And now I'm like, I have a freezer full of like some of the rarest mammals I could probably get and just like crazy stuff. And like, it's given me an appreciation too for like, the natural history I always thought was like the live animal, but there's so much that we can learn too from like the other aspect, you know? And it's like, yeah, if I could do a zoo archeology span route with that and like passionate about it and make money from it, like, or herpetology, like, yeah, that would be, be the dream. So let me know when you are cleaning out anything and you're getting rid of things from nature. Cause I, we will put them in our nature museum. I want to eventually have like a museum, you know, where it's just like everything is on the wall. Maybe not obviously here, but somewhere at the school. And, um, man, that would be amazing. Cause I know you've got a 
nature museum that will you honestly you could make that a business Grayson you could just open up a darn museum of all the stuff that's in your house this yeah. is so cool man I should honestly that'd be you pretty should neat. yeah that would be a wicked I would go I'd be like heck yeah <laughs> it's like going to Six Flags but cooler yeah. and then have you as like the person just leading the tours telling the whole stories about all those things mm-hmm. I'll never forget that you have that human skull I'm like oh I've always I don't know why I just I've always wanted a human skull in my possession I know you have one I'm like that's dang it's one. so cool yeah but in like a uh, not like a weird way, but like I literally love skull study. You know, mm-hmm. th- that book right next to you is like just all about skulls. I want to make a t shirt that says IID Vomers. It's like nobody would get that. <laughs> it's just like, what are you talking about? It's like <laughs> esoteric t shirts. Esoteric t shirts. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, again, thank you so much. And uh, we look forward to having you on again when you're back in Austin again. And yeah, absolutely. We'll catch up more. Sweet. Awesome. Thanks, Grayson. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. Y'all take care, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye bye.